Welcome to the StoryGrid Writer's Room Podcast with Valerie Francis and Leslie Watts. This show is all about getting writers writing. There's a story inside of you that's trying to get out, and even though you love this stuff, sometimes it feels like you're banging your head against the wall. Well, the StoryGrid method is like a decoder ring, and it will help you crack any story you can dream up. The hardest part is knowing where to start, but that's what we're here for. We've been where you are now, and we can help. Here on the show, we'll give you a practical approach to the StoryGrid method so that you can put it to work. If you want to crack the story code, roll up your sleeves, and let's get started. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 2 of the StoryGrid Writer's Room Podcast. My name is Valerie Francis. I'm a StoryGrid certified editor, a writer, and I specialize in stories by, for, and about women. I'm Leslie Watts. I'm a StoryGrid certified editor, and I help fiction and nonfiction writers craft epic stories that matter. This week, we are studying The Telltale Heart by Edgar Allan Poe. Now, we're focusing on scenes this season because scenes are the basic building blocks of stories. So if you can write a scene that works, you can write a story that works. Now, The Telltale Heart, of course, is a short story. And it was published in 1843. It is a global horror story. Now, here's the thing about Edgar Allan Poe. He has his fingers in so many of the types of stories, the types of genres that we categorize today, that it's kind of cool, <laughs> actually. We, so often we just, we have him in this one little box of horror. And I think that for anyone who's serious about being a writer, he's one of these, one of the writers that we've got to study and got to get to know because he touches on crime, horror, obviously, thriller, and a lot of internal genres. What do you think about that, Leslie? Definitely. You know, when we talk about this is the global genre of something, that doesn't mean it's the whole story. It means that's the primary, that's the foundation. But he, you know, I was seeing in this a lot of crime elements, which are kind of obvious, but just the way that the murders in the Rue Morgue could, you know, is connected to this story was really interesting to see. Now, The Telltale Heart, like all of Poe's work, is public domain. So you can read the story for free on Project Gutenberg, and I'll put the link to that in the show notes. Or you can just go buy a book like I do and write in the margins. <laughs> um, one of the things you're going to notice, or that I noticed anyway when I read it, this is a story that is told from the antagonist's point of view, right? And it really focuses on his mental state of being. Now, we can see this in other stories like Lolita is one of them. But more recently, Gone Girl and the Girl on the Train. Now, Gone Girl and the Girl on the Train, we know, are milestone books because they really took thrillers in another direction, right? And it seemed so new and innovative and novel. And, and it was. I'm not taking anything away from those writers. But... Poe did it first, nearly 200 years ago. 
Right. And, you know, one of the things that Sean mentioned in the Ground Your Craft course when he talked about this story is that before William James came up with the notion of psychology, Edgar Allan Poe was writing stories like this that were already, he's already covering that ground in fiction, which is really fascinating. So we mentioned in our introduction episode to the season that we're intentionally taking stories that exist elsewhere in the story grid universe. So that if you've already taken a story grid course, you've, you've already got your feet wet in some of this. So anyone who's taken ground your craft will know that we look at the telltale heart as an example of the core event of a horror story. And Sean talks about this for two hours or two hours and some just on this, this, one 2000 word short story. And as he's giving the lecture, he's seeing new things in it that he didn't see when he was preparing his notes. And everything that Sean talks about in that ground your craft lesson is awesome. And it's great. But it's in addition to everything we're going to say today that Leslie and I are going to talk about today, because we've got even more to say about it. This thing's only 2000 words long or 2100 words. But you know, it's pretty fancy piece of footwork here. <laughs> yeah. It's really amazing. <laughs> so even though it's a short story, or maybe especially since it's, short it's a short story, it's got a beginning, a middle, and an end. All stories, no matter how long they are, have this three-act structure that Aristotle talked about quite even longer ago than Poe. So let me, <laughs> let me take you through the beginning, middle, and end of The Telltale Heart. Okay, in the beginning hook. The narrator is preparing the audience, known only as you, to hear his confession. He's positioning himself. It's not that he wants to deny having killed the old man. It's that he wants to convince the listener that he's sane. And now the, the, what he offers up as evidence of his sanity is the way in which he committed the murder. In the middle build, this is all a description of the murder of the old man. The narrator gives plenty of detail. It's wonderfully gruesome. <laughs> and he's quite pleased with himself and, and with his cleverness. He sees himself as defeating the evil eye with, with such cunning that it's proof positive of his sanity. Because, of course, a madman would never think to dismember the body and hide it in the floorboards. And... <laughs> Right. And he does it. That's right. And he does it in such a way that there isn't even any blood. All I can think about when I'm reading that middle build is the scene from the first season of Breaking Bad, where Walt and Jesse have to get rid of the body in the bathtub. Remember that? Yes. <laughs> so good. So good. In the ending payoff, three police officers arrive to search the house. The narrator entertains them in the very room where the murder took place. And it all seems to be going along smoothly, in the narrator's eyes, that is, until he believes that he hears the old man's heart beating beneath the floorboards. The sound becomes so loud to him that he confesses to the murder and begs the police to make it stop. This is in 2100 words, right? Like, so good, so good. All right, so we're starting our discussion of of a scene study with a look at the scene type. Now remember there are, there's editors scene types, which would be the obligatory scenes or the obligatory moments. But then there's these writers scene types that Leslie and I are really trying to get a handle on. This is, 
So for example, in a love story, the lovers have to meet somehow. That's an editor's scene type, an obligatory moment in a love story. As the writer, our job is to figure out how they're going to meet. What kind of scenario can we set up that would innovate how they can meet? or just make it fun and interesting, or sometimes just get it over with really quickly so we can get on with the story. <laughs> right. Like in Brokeback Mountain, it's not particularly jazzy. They're in a parking lot waiting for a job interview. That's where they meet. It's simple, it gets the job done, and you move on. So, Leslie, I'm calling this, in we're talking about writer scene types now, I'm calling this a confession scene as though it's part of an interrogation, perhaps. What do you think of that? Yeah, absolutely. And this ties in with the narrative type, which I'm going to talk about a little later. To me, right, this scene type is like the framing device in the imitation game. We've, we see it a similar one in Wolves of Corellia in the, the, our roundtable episode. We see this scene in all kinds of stories. Sometimes it is the story, right? As we've got the framing device. Sometimes it's just one little scene within it. You can have it in any genre. I think it's a wonderful, and this is such a wonderful example because it is so clear. So yes, spot on Valerie, confession scene all the way. <laughs> Gold star for me. <laughs> and in terms of the editor scene type, of course, it is the um, hero at the mercy of the monster scene or victim at the mercy of the monster scene. Right, that's the, yeah, very clear. And you know, for just a second, I wanna talk about how this is a short story, but it's often the case, especially in short, short stories like this one, that the whole thing is really about, the whole story is the core event of the genre. So that you have all of the other um, the other elements of the story, you know, the other must-haves of the genre, but it's all encased in the, a big core event. So it's like, you know, the nested story units that Sean talks about, it's all in there and it happens to be the whole macro structure as well. The Telltale Heart has layers and layers and layers to it, and it is a nested story, which is very cool. You know, it, as a reader, I just read it and I enjoy it. But as a writer, I, I read it and I see the craft behind it. Now, Poe had a bit of a tough life. It wasn't an easy yeah. go. Yeah. Uh, he certainly had his demons that he was wrestling with. But man, oh man, could he write. Uh, I think Sean called him a titan of English literature, and I would agree. Yeah. Yeah, pretty clearly. <laughs> Um, so Leslie, as we look at these writer scene types and we're, we're figuring them out as we go and figuring out how they work and how they don't work and all that kind of stuff. My current working hypothesis is that the key to unlocking the writer scene type is the point of power in a scene and the power dynamic, the point of conflict. 
Now to get at it, because there are so many layers in the telltale heart, I, I had to figure out what resolution level I was going to bring to this story. Because the answer to, the, to this question of where is the power and where's the point of conflict is going to change, I believe, depending on how narrow or how wide your focus is. So for the purposes of the podcast here today, I've taken the widest possible, the most macro view of this scene as, as a way of getting into the scene and entering it. So I'm saying that there are two people in the scene. Now, if you take the Ground Your Craft course, that is micro. That's right down to the details and you'll see there's a whole lot more than two. But at this you know, 30,000 foot view of the story, I'm saying there's two, which is the narrator and the person the narrator's talking to. So Leslie used the imitation game as an example. And I thought of that too, Leslie. You would have the Benedict Cumberbatch character talking to the police officer. Those are the two people I'm thinking about in the, in the, the present moment in the story before the narrator flashes back to what has happened in the past. Leslie, how did you approach it? What, what focal length did you put on the scene when you had a look at this? Well, for me, I'm looking, I, I need to separate out all the pieces. So I'm looking at, there's the, there's the one-on-one of the interrogation, right? And then there's the, there's the one-on-one with the narrator and the demon paranoia disease that he's dealing with. There's the one-on-one of the narrator and the old man but then you have also these three police officers who come and are entertained in the bedroom where the yeah (laughs) oh wacky guy that poe yeah um so but you're right you really need to be clear about the story altitude that you're working from Otherwise, you're going to get confused. Analyze each one separately, and then you can see how the layers are working together, that there's a point of contact or more than one point of contact sometimes that between the layers, but you have to separate them at first to really understand how they're working. Exactly. So when I say it's a two-person scene, you can read it and go, yeah, but what about the police officers? Yeah, but what about the old man? Yeah, but, and you would be right on all those things. I just wanted to frame my approach to it as the most macro view so that we can, we have a common understanding of how we're getting into this story. Okay, so with that in mind, the most macro, at the most macro level, I think the narrator believes himself, and we're assuming it's, it's male, I'm just assuming it's male, although none of that is specific in the story, right. which is another one of the wonderful things about the story, but we're just gonna say he for now. Um, so at the most macro level, the narrator seems to think that he is in a power position. Ah, <laughs> uh, delusions. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, no, because he's, he's confessed to killing the old man. That doesn't seem to bother him that 
that there would be ramifications to doing that. He's right. concerned with convincing you who could be um, the judge, it could be a, a police detective, it could be a, a priest, it could be anybody. His concern is with convincing you that he is sane. So although he believes he's in the power, power position, I believe that on the external and the internal plane, he's actually powerless. So externally, he's powerless to the authorities. Internally, he's powerless to the, to the disease that is ravaging his mind. What, what do you think about that, Leslie? Absolutely. He's completely deluded about who has control. And so, and he's operating based on that misconception, which is what makes it really interesting, right? Because he believes it so strongly. So it's a really great example of, you know, it seems to me one of the cautionary elements of the story is to when you're passionately you know banging the drum about something be mindful that the perspective you have on it might not be the best way to attune to what's actually happening (laughs) so um but yeah so and i think it would be really interesting if if you were going to tell if you wanted to tell this story right take Pose all of Poe's stuff out of it and add your own elements. I think it would also be instructive to write a, an exploratory draft from the point of view of you, the recipient, or from the point of view of the police officers, or even from the point of view of the old man, right? Just to get, you know, understand the power dynamic and how this poor deluded individual is operating within it. So because the, well, we've already kind of talked about the, um, the conflict in the scene, depending on your focal length, right? It can be between the, the recipient of the story and the narrator, between, certainly between the narrator and the old man, that's an obvious one, the narrator and the three policemen, but also, and this again is where Poe really shines and sort of was a forerunner, it's also the narrator with himself. There's a real internal battle going here. So this is why I suggested off the top that if you're writing a global internal genre story, this is a good story for you to read and study. And even if you're not writing a horror or thriller or crime, yeah. As a, as a companion external genre, this is still a great one to study. The guy, the guy's ahead of his time. All right. So that's sort of the, <laughs> I wonder how many times I'm going to say that. <laughs> of course, it's all right. Really it can't be said often enough. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Oh, that they're talking about all of us in 200 years <gasps> and our work like this in 200 years. Right. right? <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> wonderful. So that's the editor's scene type and the writer's scene type that we're going through. In Story Grid, when we're analyzing a scene, there are four questions that Sean has given us to go through. And then, of course, there's the five commandments of um, storytelling. So, Leslie, take us through these four story event questions. Right. So and just as a matter of context, the story event questions help us get a handle on what's happening 
and why so that we can enter that as a story event in our spreadsheet. So we would do this for individual scenes. And these are, Sean calls them Socratic questions to help us get to the bottom of what's really going on. So the first question is, what are the characters literally doing? That is, what are their micro on the ground actions? So on the one hand, the narrator is telling a story, right? But within the story, the narrator is killing an old man and then trying to cover it up. Right, so that's just what's happening on the surface. If you were hiring actors to act out this story, what would they be doing? Then we look at the essential tactic, and this is the purpose behind it. What is driving those on-the-ground actions? And for the framing story, the narrator really wants to convince the audience, who, the listener, that he's not insane, which is really fascinating from a legal perspective, but also <laughs> from the perspective of the story. And then within the story, he is simply trying to destroy the evil eye, right? He doesn't want the man's money. He doesn't want to, he doesn't hate the man, doesn't feel, have any ill will toward him. He just needs to destroy that evil eye, right? And we've all experienced, even if we haven't gone to these extremes, which I hope none of you have, um, we've experienced that noise or that thing, right? The princess of the pea is about this very thing, right? That Thing that just gets under your skin and you can't let it go you have to deal with it so that's kind of what's going on for him in the you know in the main event inside the story so then we look at what universal human value has changed for one or more of the characters so this is just the the character or the situation has changed from positive to negative, negative to positive, or any variation thereof. So on one level, the character, the narrator, is moving from insane to sane. But of course, within the story, he's moving from life to damnation, which is a fate worse than death. So then we, we use the answers to these questions to sum up what's happening with the actions, the purposes, and the change. And that's what we'll put in the spreadsheet. So we say, this is my crack at this. The narrator who suffers from paranoia kills an old man to destroy his evil eye. As evidence of his sanity, he talks about his method and tells the listener that the dead man's heart continued to beat after death. What do you think of that, Valerie? I think you're spot on. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so next we have the five commandments of storytelling, which are the inciting incident, progressive complications that culminate in a turning point, the crisis, the climax, and the resolution. Now, I think I said it last week. I can't remember. We don't talk a lot about progressive complications in StoryGrid, not for any particular reason, just because we haven't really gotten around to it a lot yet. Um, but even though the turning point has been given a huge promotion in the story grid world, 
don't forget the progressive complications because that's where the stakes start to escalate. The stakes rise, the, you know, it all starts to get really good. And that, that's part of what hooks your audience. So you, the turning point is a progressive complication because things ramp up and ramp up and ramp up until they tip, right? And that tipping point is the turning point. That thing that incites the crisis question is the turning point. And there's a bunch of them. I know I've missed some because every time I went back and looked at the story, I'd discover another one. And then I just ran out of time to stop, to start looking, (laughs) to keep looking for them all. So, but I found that the complications were in two kind of areas. One, there were a bunch of complications that um, call the narrator's sanity into question. And I've got them all listed in the show notes, but a couple of examples are the disease itself, um, the way the narrator describes the murder, um, hearing the heartbeat, for example. And then there were a bunch of complications um, that actually drive the narrator to murder in the first place. Mm-hmm. There's an evil eye, which you know sounds a lot like cataracts, but 200 years ago, they wouldn't have known that. Uh, the old man hears the narrator enter the bedroom, right? So this is, you're starting to really get into it. Is he going to get caught? Is he not going to get caught? This is where narrative drive is starting to kick in. The old man groans because he knows that someone is in the room and he knows he's not safe. He also knows he's helpless to protect himself because he can't see, right? Right. Uh, then there's the sound of the, the creak of the lantern, all that kind of stuff. There's a ton of them. Oh, the other thing that I really liked about this is when the story takes place, it's during the witching hours. It starts at midnight and ends at 4 a.m., which is a lovely detail. The turning point, again, looking at it from the most macro level here, I have the turning point as when the narrator hears the beating of the telltale heart for the second time, when he's sitting in the chair and the dismembered body is in the floorboards beneath him. (laughs) Because, and I'm saying it's the, it's the turning point because now he's got a problem because he didn't think he had a problem before. He thought he'd gotten away with it and that he was being uh, cordial. He was being polite to help the neighbor, to the police. He thought the police believed him and that they were just there chatting and he was entertaining them at the murder scene. When he starts to hear that heart beating, he's got to do something about it. And his choices are, and this is the crisis, he can ignore it and hope that the police don't hear it and it all just goes away and and they go away. Or he can try and explain what that beating sound is, assuming the police can also hear it. The climax is his decision. So he's got this question. What's the answer to the question? That's the climactic action. He ignores it and he hopes that the police don't hear it. And the resolution, of course, is how does that decision work out for the character? And it doesn't work out too well for the narrator because for him, the noise keeps getting louder and uh, to the point where he can't take it anymore. And this is a little beat within the scene, by the way in case you want to look at beats, it's, and it's a beautiful beat, but the, the thumping of the heart gets louder and louder till he can't take it anymore. He confesses to the murder and begs the police to stop the beating. 
so good. I wish I knew how to do video editing where every time I say this is so good, this is brilliant, I could put a little timer thing up on the screen. <laughs> I don't know how to do that. <laughs> I'll have to figure that out. <laughs> All right. Now, all of that technical stuff is really fun and it's really interesting to learn. But as writers, we need to be able to put all this into action and put it into practice in our own writing. Because the technique is one thing, but seeing it in action is something else altogether. So what, what is it about this short story, this scene, that makes it, you know, at the macro level, or maybe even some part of it, that makes it worthy of our study, Leslie? Well, for me, I have a thing about point of view and narrative device. And this is a really great example, right? We've talked about scene types and beat types, but there are narrative types too. Yay, right? <laughs> it's very exciting. So the narrative type describes the basic situation. It includes the point of view, the speaker, the audience, often the purpose or the underlying essential tactic. All of the things that I've been looking at in my roundtable explorations of point of view and narrative device. The narrative type is just a global shorthand for these elements a way to describe them. So what's the point? Why is this important? Well, narrative types give you really useful constraints, just like the genre does, right? Just like all of those elements of the, the conventions and obligatory moments, they help you tell the story. Because there are so many choices, so many options about what to include and how to present it, the narrative type gives you a way of constraining those choices and narrowing the field. Because it's a lot easier to choose from, say, 10 example or 10 options than 100 or 1,000, which is what is the reality of what's out there. So that's what narrative types do for you. And if I'm looking at this one, I've got an, my regular analysis, point of view and narrative device analysis in the, in the show notes. But if I talk about this, this is the narrative type that Wallace Hildick calls, listen while I tell you. It's typically first person, it's a past tense narrative, and you see it a lot in, in short stories. Um, the key to this narrative type is that it sounds and feels as if someone is speaking rather than writing like a written confession or stream of consciousness that we would get with thoughts. So how do you do that? You're, you're essentially translating one form of communication into another, making it believable, but not annoying. Wow, that's, that's a tall order. And it's in the rhythm of the sentences, it's in your word choice. You are relying in these scenes a lot on subtext, 
rather than what's actually being said. Um, you can't you can't get by just saying you know if if it's all about what you're actually what the character is actually saying, it's not going to fly. So one of the other hallmarks of this narrative type is that you don't get a response from the audience usually, which is exactly what we see in Wolves of Corellia. Now, what are the potential pitfalls of this narrative type? Because it looks really easy, even though it's doing all these things. Well, the narrative can sound way too much like the author's own voice. And it becomes like you're telling about a story rather than telling a story. Or it can feel, it can be too much like literal speech and be distracting and annoying. So this particular narrative type, and I think first person point of view in general, is chosen a lot because it looks easy, right? We tell these stories all the time, but actually creating that authentic narrative without all of the annoying things that you get when someone's just telling you a story, it doesn't work. You, you, can't, you have to get rid of those things. So we can inadvertently adopt, like when we're studying a model like the Telltale Heart, we can inadvertently adopt things that are not actually part of the narrative type right, that are just specific to that story. And so it's really important to study closely to figure out what's creating the effect so that you don't fall into those areas of problems. <laughs> so it's okay to do a couple of drafts because the first draft, uh, whether you've plotted it or you're doing an exploratory draft, can have all of those problems in it. Yes, absolutely. Don't try to fix them in advance. Just know that they're lurking, right? And, and then when you review it, there are some great questions that Hildick offers, and I will include those in the show notes, just so that, you know, but what I'm trying to say, and you point out brilliantly, Valerie, is that let it all go, like just get in there and get it down in your first couple of drafts. When you come and to, into the editing phase, you really want to look at it critically. Right. You put your editor's hat on, take out your red pen, and then you look at those things. Yes. Don't try to edit and write at the same time. It took me a long time to learn that one. And because I was, I think because I was learning how to write through courses in a, in a, you know, a structured educational setting. So I had, I had to deliver a scene every week or a short story every week or whatever the case was. Right. So I would write the scene and polish it so I could present it to the class or I had to hand it into the prof or whatever. So I kind of was trained to write and edit as I went, but that I'm just telling everyone who's listening, if you haven't already discovered it, that is a massive colossal waste of time yeah. because you agonize over sentences that, you know, probably won't make it. They'll be left on the cutting room floor. Write the first draft quickly, then go back as quickly as you can, you know, without unnecessarily rushing it, and then go back and, and fix it in or add to it or change it when you have your editor's hat on. Right. 
So for me, with a telltale heart, I think this is just a beautiful example of how much you can accomplish in a very short number of words, a very small number of words. Because so often, I, and I do this too, okay? We want to make our story more riveting, more interesting, more exciting. And we do that by adding another storyline. Guilty. <laughs> or, or adding more characters or what have you. And that doesn't necessarily make your story better. It might make it more complicated. It might make it, it will make it a lot harder to write, but it might not serve your overall global story. Poe has 2,100 words. I don't know how long we've been talking now, but we've, in this episode, we've just touched the surface. Right. John talks about it for two hours and ground your craft, and he still hasn't tackled it all. Don't panic if your first draft or 10th draft or first story or 10th story doesn't sort of reach the bar of, oh, it's quite all right. <laughs> but, but what I love about it is that it lets us see what's possible so that we can keep improving our writing. Every time we write a short story or a scene, we can challenge ourselves to make it better than the last short story or the last scene that we wrote. We can see what's possible. That's what I like about it. So adding characters and adding plot lines aren't necessarily the way to writing a better story. Sometimes it's taking things out of your story and letting one element in your story represent several different things. Absolutely. You, you know, there are multiple ways to complicate the story and add tension and adding a bunch of stuff is not always the way. Leslie, I think it's time we started to wind this one up. So to do that, we like to just mention our key takeaway from the story that we've studied that, uh, this week. So Leslie, what is your key takeaway from the Telltale Heart? Well, it's not going to surprise you, Valerie, <laughs> that it has to do with narrative. And the narrative types help us find a narrative device that will best showcase the story. And giving the narrator a clear purpose or object of desire gives your story purpose and gives your story legs. For me, the key takeaway is this. Even though Poe is generally considered to be a horror writer, his stories influence a lot of different modern genres. So yet again, this is driving home the importance for me of reading widely and deeply because you never know where your influence is going to come from or where a great idea for your story, regardless of the genre that you're writing in, you don't know where that's going to come from or who it's going to come from. Whoever would have thought that a global internal genre story in 2020, oh, maybe in 2020, it probably would be true. <laughs> I was a global internal genre story in 2020 would be inspired by a horror story but <laughs> but this year is probably true <laughs> 2020 delivers again oh my thanks leslie i'll see you next week thank you valerie <laughs> And that wraps it up for this week. 
Remember, if you want to become a better writer, you've got to write and you've got to read. Why not challenge yourself this week to take one of the ideas we talked about in the episode and use it in your work? To support the show, leave us a rating and review and tell your writer friends about us. And if you're watching on YouTube, be sure to subscribe to the channel. If you want to see how we put story theory into practice, subscribe to the UnPodcast at ValerieFrancis.ca slash Inner Circle or Writership.com. For show notes, blog posts, and information on the StoryGrid courses and guild, visit StoryGrid.com. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. <laughs>